It sounds a little weird, but being the host of a show like Dinners on Me, where you eat out all the time, can be a little stressful on the body. I first gave AG1 a try because I was feeling a little sluggish and I wanted to make sure I was getting the daily nutrients that I needed. Since drinking AG1 daily, I feel real difference with my energy levels and my ability to focus. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. I recommend AG1 to all my family and friends because it's formulated based on the latest science and maintains high-quality standards. Even Justin has started drinking AG1, and he tells me that it really helps his energy level, helps with stress, helps his gut health, all that good stuff. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner to the Dinners on Me podcast. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free free AG1 travel packets with your first purchase at drinkag1.com slash dinner. That's drinkag1.com slash dinner. Check it out. Hey, Dinners On Me listeners. I feel so honored and privileged, really, to be able to discuss so many aspects of my personal life with you. My coming out story, my marriage to Justin, and the beautiful family that we've created. It means a lot to me that we can have those conversations, especially at a time when rights of queer people, especially people in the trans community, are under attack. And it makes it even more important for me uh, to be able to give awareness and visibility into other stories other than my own. I've had so many great conversations on this podcast, from my friend Zachary Quinto's story on deciding to come out publicly to Jonathan Van Ness and all of their amazing activism and openness about their own positive status. I hope to continue to have more of these conversations because they're just so important to me and they're so special to me. So on that note, I'd love to revisit some of my favorite moments of some of these very special conversations. Up first, we have my friend Zachary Quinto. He's going to start us off. You know him from Star Trek and the boys in the band on Broadway. I asked him to meet me to chat over some salads at American Bar in the West Village. You know, our early days in L.A. together, you know, we did live close to one another on the east side of LA. Sure. And I knew, you know, you were you were out to your friends, you uh-huh. were you were gay, uh-huh. you were enjoying your life as a gay man. You were uh-huh. we were going to Akbar together, yeah, we went which to is the Akbar quite a lot. One of uh the best bars in Los Angeles on the east side. We were there quite a bit. We sure were. Um and I do remember also like when Backpack. Oh, backpack. <laughs> there was a guy at Akbar who was wearing a backpack. And just, he was wearing just, a backpack. Zach and I both thought that um, he was bar. really handsome. Yeah, he was wearing a backpack in the bar, and Zach yeah. and I thought he was both really handsome. And Zach ended up having a— Knowing him. Knowing him, yes. <laughs> I totally forgot about backpack. Yeah, backpack. But, I mean, I, those moments were so special, like just having that sort of safety net in L.A., having someone— 
who was a part of the, the queer community, although you hadn't come out publicly at that point mm-hmm. yet, but like, you know, someone I felt safe with mm-hmm. and like showing me to all these places, having a, a wingman, you know, to, to be a single man in Los Angeles and yeah. go to these places. And I also remember one night leaving that bar and across the street above the Tang's Donut was a huge billboard for Heroes. Oh, yeah. And then right after you had joined Heroes. Right. So I was also watching... Because I, I moved to LA. I was part of a sitcom that did not succeed. I've kept my anonymity pretty much intact. There was a few people who maybe knew who I was, but you mm-hmm. were you were thrust onto this wildly popular show yeah. mid-season in the first year mm-hmm. as a as a character that had been talked about a yep. lot in the series. Yep. You were the villain mm-hmm. that finally made an appearance, mm-hmm. uh, Siler. Do you want some of these um, artichokes? Look, what is this artichokes it's and a, fries? It looks like a little um, poo poo platter. Yeah. Poo-poo platter fried things. Okay. Delicious. Right? So good. I got to watch you, you know, a, a friend, a, uh, what I considered a contemporary, mm-hmm. sort of move into this other area of success. And it was the first time, I mean, I guess I saw it a little bit with Liz Banks, but like, I yep. mean, I wasn't going out to gay bars with her. Sure. Um, you know, it was the first time I was seeing a friend of mine sort of like in real time have a great break mm-hmm. and and sort of also navigate what that meant for his personal life. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit to like what that, because this is again, before you came out publicly, which right. we'll, we will get to, but like, what was that like for you? Because in my eyes, you didn't change too mm-hmm. much of mm-hmm. your behavior. Yeah, I really didn't. And that's a commitment I made to myself early on when I realized that my experiences in the world were changing a bit. You know, I made a real conscious decision and commitment to myself that I would not change my experiences of the world. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I wasn't going to allow exposure or fame, celebrity to define my experience or to right. define who I was. I think my friends and the people that were close to me and that I trusted before all that happened became even more important to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I had been at it for a while. I think it was eight years that I was in LA before Heroes mm-hmm. happened. And Heroes was really the the project that changed my trajectory. And then immediately after Heroes, I got Star Trek. And so that year of my life, it was the year I turned 30. It was so crazy, you yeah. know, for one thing to happen that felt like, oh my God, look, I've achieved this thing. And then six months later, this other thing happened. Right. It was like, oh, I can't even, it felt like hitting the lottery twice, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, in those moments with heroes, when you were like meeting the cast, or yeah. meeting the people in the hair and makeup trailer, right. sort of like, not necessarily like the executives or, you know, maybe uh-huh. even like the writers, like, were you open about who you were like in your private life? Were you guarded? Were there certain people that you were telling things to or sharing things with and certain people you weren't? Were you, um, compartmentalizing and like kind of keeping that out of the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't leading with it. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that I was talking about openly. It wasn't something that I was actively trying to hide. Okay, You know, when you and I were coming up, it was a completely different time. And the idea of being gay was entirely different than it is now. I mean, the changes that we've experienced in the last 15 years in our culture, our society, and our business are momentous. So it was something that I still felt like I needed to control. Mm -hmm. There was a sense of needing to you know, decide what the narrative would be. I mean, those were those were the days for when, fear of lack of opportunity. Yeah, I think for fear of for fear of fear, just for fear of you know, we were conditioned to be afraid of um, being gay. That's yeah. just the truth. I mean, you know that that's true of my upbringing. You know, I was raised 
very Catholic and, you know, the church, the way that things were instilled in me as a kid um, led me to believe that there was something wrong with that part of me, right? Yeah, me too, me too. I mean, that was the days when, like, Perez Hilton was still, like, outing people. You know, if someone caught a whiff that you might be gay, then all of a sudden this this kind of attention got paid to you that was, there was an insidiousness to it and there Mm -hmm. was a, a perniciousness to it. And so I was definitely aware of that. I mean, I was out to everybody in my life. Right. By that time, my friends and my family. Um, well, but, you, you were operating on a day-to-day. Like, if you wanted to go out to a gay bar, you, the, yeah. you were not worrying no, about that. No, I wasn't. And there were people that would see you sure. and, like, maybe talk. And, like, that was not totally. something I didn't, that seemed yeah. to make you nervous at all. No, it was more of a public narrative than right. anything else, right? It was my life as an actor and my career was something that I was very measured about. And I was very, for those first years of success, you know, it, it, it took me five years after Heroes, you know, until I came out publicly. Coming to the, that self-realization yourself is, is incredibly important and it needs to be on your own timeline. Yeah, it's, I mean, coming out is an incredibly personal journey and it is an evolution and it feels like, especially when you're in the public eye and making the declaration of identifying as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, there are other considerations. And I think you can't be an effective contributor to the broader cause unless you've arrived there in an authentic way. And nobody can define what that is except yourself. I was aware of it. And, um, and yeah, and then eventually like when I started getting closer with castmates and people in, in, in the world of the show, I started to, you know, acknowledge that to them. And I can remember being at Comic-Con for a panel for heroes. And this was a, this was a defining moment. It was one of those big panels Mm -hmm. at Comic-Con in like Mm -hmm. Hall H with like thousands and thousands of people. And this moderator was a well-known filmmaker and he was doing the interview and then he, at the end, he said something. I don't think he said faggot, but he definitely said something like, wow. he made some reference, not to me. He was like, it was, he was interviewing and it was mm-hmm. a gay reference. And I was absolutely furious. I was so angry. I couldn't believe that it had happened, that he had said it. And, uh, and, and it was so casual, like cavalier. And we got off the stage and I was, I was so mad. That was for me a moment because I hadn't come out yet. You know, I hadn't been out publicly and mm-hmm. I hadn't even been out to everybody in, in my show. And I just remember fuming and, and talking to our showrunner and our producers. We were all hanging out afterwards and just like the level of support that I got from everybody was so uh, overwhelming mm. and the sense of understanding. And there was a lot that was unsaid and unspoken from my position, you know, I, obviously they didn't need to know why I was so upset by it, right? Or they, they knew why I was so upset by it, I didn't need to say it, you know? And that was a moment for me that sort of really softened the boundaries around my relationship with my castmates and my coworkers, my colleagues. There was and, unspoken understanding. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. they saw that it had affected me so personally. And even though I hadn't explicitly come out to them, sure. <laughs> that it didn't take much to figure it out. And it was things like that, right, that I think over time made me more comfortable and more confident in my authentic self. And over, you know, the next few years, I was able to find my way 
to making a more a more of a public acknowledgement mm -hmm. of, of my identity. Right, which eventually happened when you were doing Angels in America. It didn't happen when I was doing Angels in America. Actually, interestingly, I thought it would. I thought it did. No, I did Angels in America in 2010. Um, I didn't come out publicly until a year later, 2011, actually. So when I was doing Angels in America, obviously, I thought, well, this is this is going to be the moment. Did, and just to pause really yeah, briefly, yeah. like Angels in America is like this iconic, it's, it is the, the, the crown jewel of queer theater. Yeah. Written by the Tony Kushner, yeah. the brilliant Tony Kushner, mm -hmm. won the Pulitzer Prize, won Tony Awards, yeah. and this you were involved in the first New York revival of right. this yeah. this piece, and there was a lot of eyes on it, a lot yeah. of excitement around it. Yeah, it was originally um, done in 1994, and we did the first New York revival at the Signature Theater right. in 2010. So I was being interviewed for a, a profile in the New York Times, and I had this interview with this journalist, and he asked me this question right at the end. He said, you know, there's a lot of speculation online mm. about who you're dating and if you're, you know, if you're dating or who you're dating. And I just wonder what that's like, you know, do you, and I, and I just remember like sitting there with him and being like, oh my God, is it going to happen? What's happening? I can't do that. And I just, I remember saying like, oh, I really copped out. And I said something like, well, I'm much more interested in what people have to say about my work than about who I'm dating, Which you know? in Hollywood yeah. journalist totally. terms well, is like, like yeah, okay, <laughs> sure, honey. Um, we get it, okay. Um, but I just wasn't in that moment, I just wasn't ready. Yeah, I wasn't ready to do but it. Going back to what I'm saying, you have to be ready. You have yeah, to control yeah. that narrative. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's no- Don't feel bad about that. No, no, I, I don't feel bad about it. Uh, uh, you know, I did feel but like- But you were flagging it as a, an opportunity. And a you, missed opportunity in okay. that moment. Okay. And, and, I, and I did feel like there was part of me that felt like, oh my God, you know, here I am doing this play about the AIDS epidemic and, you know, so much about honoring the- um, the people who died and, you know, uh, like my forebears and it, did I, did I squander that opportunity? There was, there was that question mm -hmm. that I had for myself. And another thing that happened that same summer while I was doing Angels in America was the summer that the It Gets Better campaign was kind of at its peak, right? right? So people were all these, you know, people from the LGBTQ community and, and allies were making these videos to say it gets better. And all these young people were killing themselves. That's the if you remember that. But yes. like there were a number of suicides of young people who were bullied and, you know, who, who just felt like there was no other way, no other, and, and they were killing themselves. And so that was really the genesis of the It Gets Better campaign. And I remember making an It Gets Better video that summer while I was doing Angels in America, but I hadn't come out publicly. So, so for me, the video was, you know, I stand with, uh, as an ally, you know, I didn't acknowledge my own identity as a gay man, but I said, like, I support all these these people and, you know, any young people, like, you know, it does get better and whatever. I joined, I think I said something like, I joined the chorus of voices who are rising up again, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, and put that video out, you know, and so I was doing this play and I was living my life and, you know, going out and dating people and having Not all these me. experiences. Not Not Jesse Tyler Ferguson, no, but... <laughs> Um, others and yes. uh, and and backpack. yet backpack no backpack had, had sailed that ship had sailed by yeah. then but yes you know uh, and having these experiences and not living an authentic life you know so and the play was incredible I mean I had an amazing time doing that play and living in New York and so that was really that that for that time and then a year later I was doing uh, by this time now I was dating 
Was I dating Jonathan by now? I think I was. Yeah, because we you met. Were, yeah. yeah, we met. So I was dating Jonathan, and I had done Star Trek. So I had sort of reached a level of exposure, and I felt like my identity, the integration of my identity and my public life, you know, was starting to close in. Like the lines were starting to, you know, they're about to intersect. I mm -hmm. felt that way. I had produced my first film and uh, and starred in the movie. It's called Margin Call. And, Excellent uh, film. Thank you. And, uh, and, a, and a pretty wonderful Oscar experience. Nominated. Oscar nominated film. Um, so I was doing... I was doing press for Margin Call, and right around that time, I read a story about a young kid who killed himself. His name was Jamie Rodemeyer, and I, and I was reading the story about him and his life, and in the story, it had mentioned that a few months before he took his own life, he made an It Gets Better video. I mean, I, I get really even talking about it now. It's so, I couldn't believe it, you know? It was mm -hmm. like that fact was included in the story about him, like, directly for me, mm. right? Because I just felt like here I was living this life of, of opportunity and privilege, and I was keeping this part of myself separate and private. And it was the first time, I think, that I realized the power of my voice in the broader conversation socially, and I felt like I had no choice in the matter anymore at that time. And I was doing press for Margin Call. And so there was a lot of attention being paid to me at this time again. And I was doing another profile for New York Magazine. And I remember being, I was at Cafe Clooney, um, another place we've eaten together. Yes. And I was sitting with a journalist. And I remember I made the decision the day before I went to do this profile mm -hmm. that I was going to come out. And I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my publicist, I didn't tell my friends, I didn't ask anybody to guide me or advise me, I didn't tell Jonathan, I didn't tell anyone. I just made the decision that I was gonna... With uh, much more vindictive, you, you were more vindictive, vindictive is the wrong word, you were more... Um, <laughs> so get this boy <laughs> But there was much more vindication this time around than there was before when you thought I might come out in this New York Times piece. I still don't think vindication is the right Vind word either. Okay, what word do you think? Uh, Conviction. Conviction. I think is what you're looking for, right? There was no question in the matter for me to the point where, you know, again, at that time, I think even still today, like coming out publicly, a lot of people would consult their team mm -hmm. and talk to their publicists sure. to make sure everybody's on board with it. And for me, it was absolutely no question in my mind that that was going to be what I did. And so I went to this interview at Cafe Clooney and I was sitting with this journalist and he brought up Angels in America and was mm -hmm. talking to me about, you know, what it was like to do that play. And I just simply referred to myself as a gay man. I said the words, well, you know, as a gay man, having that experience for me was dot, dot, dot. And I could feel him. He was like taking notes. And I felt him like, as I said that, like, he stopped the writing. His pen like hovered. And, and I mm. felt him sort of like, did that just happen? Like, did what I think happened just happen? Like, mm. and, and then he just, you know, kept going. And so a few minutes later, I was like, did he get it? Like, was that enough? Like, mm. whatever. So then I referred to myself again as a gay man in the same, you know, again. And, uh, and that did the trick. I think it was like about a week, that, you know, lead time. Like, we did the interview and the article was coming out like a week or so later. And so I'd finished the interview and then I went home and then I told everybody, right? Mm -hmm. I told my team and mm -hmm. I called my publicist. And I said, I just want you to know what I've done. 
Everybody was incredibly supportive, and that began the conversation in a public way. And so when the article came out, obviously, the headline was that, and I drafted a statement. I think I had a website at the time. It was like when people still had websites, but <laughs> I drafted a statement, and Zachary I put it on my, my website, yeah, my blog or whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, that was it. You know, it, it certainly got picked up all yeah, over the place. Sure. And but this is also the era of T.R. Knight coming out on the cover of People magazine and Neil Patrick Harris and I, I find that sort of range of ways you can come out publicly kind of fascinating and how you sit in that range, I think is very fascinating and, all of, and also very true to who you are. Mm -hmm. um, it felt very authentic. Did you have like kind of an awareness of that as you were, well, obviously you had a plan to, to talk about this, but. Yeah, for me, I did it on my own terms, in my own time, without the advice or counsel of anyone but myself. And uh, I think it informed the work that I've been able to do subsequently on behalf of some of these young people, especially right. who have struggled and, and have suffered as a result of not being accepted and in a lot of cases not accepting themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the first things I did after I came out publicly was contact the Trevor Project in Los Angeles um, because that was an organization that I had supported for years quietly and anonymously. And the work that they do is uh, it's sorry, a hotline. It's a, yeah, the Trevor Project is an anti suicide hotline, essentially, and they do incredible work. I mean, it's really, to me, one of the most phenomenal organizations to benefit the LGBTQ plus community and young people in particular mm -hmm. in the community. And I had supported them for years anonymously, donating money and whatever, but I could never obviously publicly support them. And so I immediately reached out to them and went into their offices in Los Angeles and got a tour and met the people that ran the organization yeah. and met volunteers. And by the end of that visit, I had committed to go through the Lifeline training to become a Lifeline operator on the phone. Yeah. So for the next year, year and a half, wow. I would go and do shifts at the Trevor Project and man the phones and talk to young people who were contemplating taking their own lives. That must and have been incredibly impactful. Absolutely incredible. So like the level of work that I was able to do to make a, an actionable difference mm -hmm. in the lives of people was so phenomenal and it felt so gratifying. And then just being able to be a visible ally and to be somebody in the community who was able to say like, look, you know, it's possible to be true to who you are and to still succeed and to still have opportunities yeah. and to not be defined by it. Now for a quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, I talk to the wise and hilarious Jonathan Van Ness about their non-binary journey, coming out about their HIV positive status and why queer activism is so important to them. Okay, be right back. It sounds a little weird, but being the host of a show like Dinners on Me, where you eat out all the time, can be a little stressful on the body. I first gave AG1 a try because I was feeling a little sluggish and I wanted to make sure I was getting the daily nutrients that I needed. Since drinking AG1 daily, I feel a real difference with my energy levels and my ability to focus. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. Not only did I replace my multivitamin with AG1, but I love that every scoop also includes rhodiola and B vitamins for an energy boost. 
I just sort of added it to my morning routine. You know, you brush my teeth, I floss, I have my AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packets with your first purchase at drinkag1.com slash dinner. That's drinkag1.com slash dinner. Check it out. Support for today's episode comes from Hexclad. I hosted the Jane's Beard Awards um, twice, actually. I'm, I'm not bragging. I'm just telling the truth. And Hexclad is the official cookware of the James Beard Foundation. So I was so happy to hear their Dinners on Me sponsors. Hexclad has revolutionized the cookware industry with an all-in-one hybrid pan that gives you the convenience and cleanup of nonstick, the versatility of your grandma's cast iron, and the durability to last a lifetime. Whether you want to make that perfect steak dinner on date night or ditch that greasy pan from your college apartment, Hexclad has you covered. James Beard celebrates incredible chefs annually with their prestigious awards that I have had the privilege of handing out. Again, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying. And it's no surprise that Hexclad is their official cookware. They are a chef's dream and I, I just, I love cooking with them. I feel so professional when I do. Hexclad also has a lifetime warranty. These are literally the last set of pots and pans you will ever have to buy. Trust me when I say your partner, your family, and all your dinner guests will thank you. So, chef, now is the time to upgrade that kitchen. For a limited time only, our listeners get 10% off their order with an exclusive link. Just head to hexclad.com slash JTF. Support our show and check them out at hexclad.com forward slash JTF. Bon appetit. Let's eat with Hexclad's revolutionary cookware. Don't you just love it when someone looks at you and says... Hmm, something's different about you. What were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake than ever. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and wider for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes, and you know you can trust them because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lohm, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying, something's different about you, but in the best possible way. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. This episode of Dinners on Me is brought to you by BetterHelp. Okay, so listen, I was in my kitchen the other day, and I'm, I'm very particular about how I like things in the kitchen. I need things to be in a specific place. I like things to stay clean. So imagine my frustration when I saw that my husband, Justin, had left an empty can of cold brew and a wrapper from Protein Bar on the counter right next to the recycling bin. Why couldn't he just open the drawer with the, with the recycling bin in it and put it in there? This is something I need to get off my chest. Therapy is a very safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. I mean, I've learned a lot from therapy and I have learned that, you know, I need to pick my battles. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can even switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dinners today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dinners. Next, we have hair care entrepreneur, host of Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness, and the star of Queer Eye, Jonathan Van Ness. I am so glad they agreed to chat with me at Bad Roman in New York City. It's whimsical and beautiful, just like Jonathan, and I absolutely love this conversation. Um, wait, so tell me, you were talking about Texas. Oh yeah, Texas, I forgot. Let's go to something serious. So, uh, yeah, so it's really been interesting being there. I do feel like I kind of have been getting there, getting boiled, but I feel like this, it's like a long game. It's not mm, a short game. Absolutely. So that's what I tell myself, but I do miss my friends in LA and New York, and I miss living in a state where I don't feel like the legislator is specifically trying to make my life and people mm-hmm. like me's life harder and like less welcome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's gotta be taxing on just the psyche. Um, talk to me a little bit about the evolution of you becoming non-binary. If that was like a, was that something that always was a, a, like a definition you were searching for? Mm. No, it's just something that I definitely always was and am. It's really when I met my friend Alok, who is, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Alok, but they're one of the most incredible poets, comedians, writers, producers, thought leaders, just like one of my favorite people of all time. Um, and they were really the one who taught me about what non-binary is. Once they explained to me what that was, I was like, oh, I've that's exactly... But everyone has a kind of like a different experience with like their non-binary identity. Mm-hmm. Non-binary and like gender diverse expressions have existed for thousands and thousands of years mm-hmm. on every single continent. Okay. So that's very true. But I, it wasn't something that I was necessarily searching for, but I do think, especially because I'm also someone who's dealt with sexual compulsivity, which can happen a lot of times when you're a survivor of sexual abuse, like everyone deals with their abuse in like different ways. And yeah. for me, it made me like really just an absolute hussy for a long time. <laughs> like I just was fucking everything that Listen, wasn't tied down. Being a hussy. Not at all, but you know, when you're doing things that you regret yes. and that you aren't in control of, that's, that's like, so that's, that's yes. for me where like the, that's kind of, and so for me, I found that like really any sort of, of my feminine expression was such a repulsion to men that like, I really banished that part of myself as I came into my twenties. Cause I was like, Oh my God, if I want these dudes to, you know, it's like my lisp was all that they could handle. So I had to like hide my heels, hide my wigs, hide my makeup. I always had it like hidden in a little bit of my closet. I remember like this one trick found my shoes and I was like, oh, my sister with huge feet. <laughs> my sister with my huge footed sister with bad taste <laughs> no. was here. With bad taste. Yeah, with bad taste because she shops at Payless. It's the only place that has shoes big enough for her big ass feet, you know. Uh, so yeah, like it just was like a more shameless place. And then I realized like once a number of people I had sex with got like a comma in it and I had been to like rehab a few times, I realized that I was like, oh, like sacrificing like who I am to like have this like fleeting connection that actually makes me feel worse about myself isn't worth it. Like I don't want to sacrifice myself anymore. Mm -hmm. And then I got to this place of like healing and therapy that was like in my like mid to late twenties and really 
I didn't still have the language for what non-binary meant, but just uh, didn't feel like I, I never like edited myself for like dating or sex ever again. Right. First of all, I love how you're such a an ambassador, I guess, in some ways about being HIV positive. I, I, I think visibility is so wildly important. Um, obviously, we're living in an era where it's much more different to be HIV positive now than it was 10 years ago. Right. Talk to me a little bit about you were you were diagnosed uh, with HIV uh, in 2012. And then you didn't come out publicly to the media and press about it until 2019. Well, to what? be fair, no one really knew who I was until like 2018. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, but you, you were, I'm sure you were, you were telling your friends and your family. Oh, yeah, oh my God. Talk to me I mean, about- I that was part of why I did talk about it yeah. because like I was so open about it in my life. And so I, it wasn't like it was ever a secret in my universe. And so that was also partly like why I was like, I want to talk about this on my own terms and just like wasn't sure if I was ready yet at the very beginning. And not that I was ever discouraged from doing so, but then after like a few experiences, I was like, fuck this, I'm like ready to talk about it. Yeah. And so then I did. Yeah. Well, I, I really wrote about it in my book, my first book, Over right. the Top, but then in oh, doing that's press you, for that. It truly was like on your own terms, in your own words, yeah. in a long form with nuance. Yeah. That's great. But that's what was so interesting about it was, is that like, so in Over the Top, it was on my terms, but then I didn't realize until like a month before Over the Top came out that like, thank you, honey. Yeah. I was like, wait, so I'm gonna, cause obviously with the book coming out, my PR was like, it's really important that we partner with like the right person to like tell this story. Yeah. And so then the New York Times came along and I was like, well, Jesus, honey, like that is giving journalistic <laughs> excellence. But it never occurred to me that if I did that, like they would break my story. Right. Like I wouldn't break it. Like, right. they would break it. Right. And I remember, like, I was already way too far in, and, like, I think my publicist was just like, girl, don't you know? Like, that's how it works. But I didn't know, and I totally didn't get it. And it was how really that feel for you to have? crushing. And an incredible stress. Because sure. I did the interview maybe, like, a month before, but, like, it was the Emmys, and I knew, like, they said, like, when the article would come out, but between, like, a Friday and a Sunday, so I didn't know, like, the minute. And I was, like, doing red carpets and doing, like, tour stuff for my, like, comedy tour at the time. And I was, like... I remember, like, I was going on, I think I was in, like, Canada just for last festival, but I was, I remember thinking, like, is this news, is this article going to come out, like, when I'm on stage and, like, I'm right. going to come off stage and, like, everyone's going to, like, mm -hmm. is there going to be some point when, like, everyone's going to know? And it ultimately happened. I remember we got back into New York at, like, six in the morning and then me and my best friend, who's also my makeup artist, like, passed out on my couch, like, in my fifth story, like, walk up that I lived in in Chelsea at the time. And we passed out when I woke up, like my phone, I, I had like hundreds of missed calls. And like, I was like, oh my God, it's out. Even talking about it now, I'm like, oh, like I have like a pit in my stomach. And I, it, it so it was okay. It was cool. It was good. Like it was. Was there any, was there a sense of relief that it was out as well or? Yeah, it was, it really was like kind of like a twilight zone. Cause then I like went on like the, like. The book tour, and then I was like, and well, yeah. Was, then you're asked to. I'm sure that was the and first also my question. Cat had just like died tragically, oh, which was like also insane. Yeah, I remember my mom especially. Like, I tried out for the talent show in sixth grade, and I ended up making it with this incredibly stirring, interpretive, bad ballet <laughs> off ice figure skating yeah. uh, hybrid dance form that I made yeah, up yeah, yeah. to this like jewel song. And I remember my mom sitting me down and being like if you make this talent show, like, you're never going to live this down. Like, these kids are never going to forgive you for this. And similarly, when I wrote my book, she was like, honey, if you, like, there's no taking this back. Yeah. And, like, and like you don't have to do this. Like, I know you want to help. I know you want to, like, but you don't have to do this. And a lot of people said that to me. And I was like, I'm ready. Like, wow. and HIV stigma. <laughs> we were doing this. Right, right, and then right. afterwards, like, the vulnerability hangover was so intense. It was 
January 2020 because it came out in like September 2019. And when the tour was over and when like that comedy tour was over, I was like, I never wanted to leave my house yeah. again. Like, I, I'm happy I did it now, but there was like a good like six months to a year there where I was really traumatized. And also like in our in our community, like there was a few times where like people really weaponized it against me, mm. like making jokes on Twitter, just like memes, like, like, cause actually like some of the worst shit people have ever said to me was like from in our community. Like yeah. way worse than Trump people. Yeah. Um, and that's been weird because like I love our community and I'll fight for our community like no matter what, like whenever, however. And we I also know, know how to hurt each other the exactly. most. Exactly. And it's like, it, so that was just like, I had heard stuff before and I'd seen stuff before, but once I was like open about my status and having people making jokes about like dying of full blown AIDS or just really like, that fucked me up. And it fucked sure. me up for a while. Yeah. There's so many times where I used to get headlines where I'm like, I'm never doing that shit again. Like, that felt bad. Like, I will keep my opinions to myself for right, much. Right. Unless it's about queer rights. Right, of course. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, and do you feel, I mean, you sort of spoke to it a little bit, but do you feel like society's doing a little bit better or worse than. than... Markedly, so much worse. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, so stressed yeah. out. Yeah. I'm, Jesse, I'm so stressed the fuck out about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think there are reasons to hope, but I'm also kind of shitting my pants. Like, I can't tell. Well, I'm, I'm such an optimist, so I, I try to look for the silver lining everywhere, but I'm in the same place where I just, I'm very discouraged and scared. It's giving full circle, though, not to interrupt, and it's yeah. like, been, but it's only because I'm obsessed with you, and I like, I'm like really into chatting. I like get so excited, and then I can't <laughs> not interrupt. It's no, not one of my better parts of my personality. But we've been talking about this on our pod, and... Like, especially when it comes to gender-affirming care, because when we were talking about Texas yeah. at the beginning, that's one of the things that I'm, like, the most concerned about because it's, like, first you have, like, the the court, and then you have, like, the Court of Appeals and, like, the District Court, and then it's a Supreme Court. And ways that cases get fast-tracked to the Supreme Court is when the circuit courts, so like, the First Circuit, the Second Circuit, the Third, the Fourth, the Fifth, when circuit courts rule, like, opposing decisions, it gets, like, fast-tracked. And so some of these gender-affirming care bans have been upheld and, like, allowed to go into effect, but then other ones have been struck down mm -hmm. and similar with drag performance. Yes. But the point is, is that there's going to, with all of these anti-trans and anti-queer bills, and because a lot of them are in conservative states that are in different circuit courts, we now have a Supreme Court that has a 6-3 majority mm -hmm. that has shown that, like, they don't give a fuck about separation of church and state. And they've ruled it time and time again, especially with 303 versus Linus or Elinus or however you say it. But this court's bad. And I think that they're, you know, Biden, is he exciting? Like, for me, yeah. He gets me soaking fucking wet, actually. <laughs> I want him to. I want him and Jill to run a fucking train on me, actually. And our, and our lack of enthusiasm for him is pissing me the fuck off. Is there other people who I would like love to fantasize about? Yeah, I was like the biggest Elizabeth Warren queen I yeah. know. Like, do I like Bernie's ideas like way fucking better? You're goddamn right, I do. But here's the thing, folks. This is where we fucking are. And I do think that there's a lot of people. No offense, that are in our circles in New York and in. California that think, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Like I can tell you undoubtedly in Texas from being on the ground, yeah. you're talking to a girl who like goes to the Capitol in Texas. Like I talk to parents of trans kids regularly that have left states. And what about the people, the parents of trans kids who cannot afford to pick up and leave states? Right. Cause I talked to those parents too and trans rights hundred percent, but also the fact that we don't realize that trans rights are inextricably tied to women's rights and abortion rights. 100%. This has happened like together. And so like, just the amount of comfort that I see people taking and like, well, I live in California or I live in New York and like, I can get an abortion if I need one or my friends, like y'all, 
that like people's lives are on fucking fire. Mm-hmm. Your fellow Americans, because and like it's like gerrymandering, like minority rule. We're, now we're seeing this like Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin who like they're these Republicans are literally trying to impeach this woman because she said that these maps were gerrymandered. So have you heard about this? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. like, because she said that the maps have been rigged, they wanted her to recuse herself from these two cases in the Wisconsin Supreme Court about their, like, gerrymandered fucking, and so in there, well, if you don't do it, we're going to impeach you. Right. And because of gerrymandering, they have a supermajority in the state house and the Senate, and they have the power, they actually have the exact amount of senators that they need to do that. Right. And this, so that's what I mean. It's like, it's a long-term game. We got to fucking mm-hmm. be calm. And I hate to be one of those people that's like the media. But like, the more hits and impressions you make, the more you can sell ads for. Like, I come from a broadcasting family. Mm-hmm. You're worth more when you get more traffic to your site. And negative headlines, because of our yes. survival bias, get more traffic than one that's like, he's doing great or someone's doing great. Right. So if we could just like stop being ageist and cunts to the Biden administration mm-hmm. and more like trigger everyone's fear from the fact that like there's a six fucking three real supermajority in the Supreme Court right now. And these conservatives are coming out every fucking week being paid off by billionaires who get money from dark fucking money. And they're busting unions. They busted your fucking female family members right to get a goddamn abortion yeah. in like 27 fucking states in this country. And if you don't think they are coming for you next, honey, yeah. get it together. <laughs> so if we could just make some more like media that's more like that as opposed to being like, oh, but he's so old and like he doesn't give me a boner. President Biden, right. with all due respect, I will suck your dick <laughs> right now. You have gotten these fucking, you have gotten this shit passed. If Jill wants to watch, so fucking be it. He's probably going to follow me on Instagram right now once he hears this because President Biden does, in fact, follow me on Instagram. So maybe we should edit all of this out. But I'll just say this. Um, he has done a lot. Uh, and I do think he's our best chance at like keeping Trump out of office. And I'm like yeah. really concerned. Yeah, no, 100%. I'm but I'll just say, it's not just... Obviously, the federal elections, but wherever you live, it is so your state elections, too. Absolutely. That's where so much of the carnage is. And if you're listening to this and you're like, well, fuck, I'm one of these fucking coastal elites, bitch. I'm in L.A., I'm in California. What am I going to do? There's this thing called Sister District. And do you know about Sister District? I do, yeah. I'm so obsessed with Sister District. I love Lala Wu, uh, Gabby Goldstein, they founded Sister District. I'm like a huge cheerleader of them, but you can donate your time, your money, your resources. They pair like swing districts and swing states with people who are like your LAs, your New Yorks, like your very progressive queens and progressive places where like they don't even need your vote anymore because they're so progressive, you right. know? They pair them with people who really need the support and the resources for phone banking, mm-hmm. resource sharing. Um, so they, great. And yeah. also, like, on off election years, they really help to facilitate, um, oh, my God, mutual aid. Oh, <clears throat> so there's, like, this is a huge off election year in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Their entire state house and senate is up for grabs. Danica Rome, the first openly transgender state elected official ever in history, is from Virginia. She has a really anti-trans guy running against her. But yeah, so if you're just like, oh my god, I'm so stressed out listening to JBN living in Texas, and this is so stressful, and what can I do to help a queen? Donate to Sister no, District. Such, such great advice. Please. Wait, what is this? Lemon cheesecake. <gasps> that's a cheesecake? Um, it's like a is it cake episode. Oh <laughs> my god, it is. Don't mind if I do, that's darling. No, you did that one. Wait. I want to ask you about your children's book. But yeah, Peanut. They're yeah. only banned in like seven counties. And <laughs> I want to talk about that. Intense. So Peanut Goes for Gold is about a guinea pig. It's for the gold. I know, but yeah, Peanut Goes for the Gold. There's like a little non-binary rhythmic gymnast guinea pig. And it, this book was banned in... Well, they voted to ban it in St. John's, Florida, but I think it didn't make it. Well, consider the source, yeah. But then I think 
I mean, it has been caught up in a few book band sense, actually. Right, right, right. It's just that Peanut uses they, them pronouns, but we never talk about it. I just gave right. them they, them pronouns. We never talk about it. Right, right, right. They have great clothes. I'm going to say something really embarrassing and truthful. Uh-huh. And Okay. So you're just talking about this, like, really important thing, like, yeah. that whole time. Yeah. About this, like, play being banned, like, you know, banning, we're fucking banning books, we're banning plays out in these fucking streets. Yeah. All I could think about was how good that cheesecake was the whole time. <laughs> And also between my martini and the cheesecake, like, is that why all these, like, white women don't care about trans rights and gay rights and stuff? Because, like, we're just, like, out here eating cheesecake and drinking martinis, and you just, like, forget. Because, like, like, literally, it wasn't hitting me with the same severity, like, after one martini and, like, that cheesecake, I was, like, could it be that bad? Like, (laughs) Maybe that's all we needed. make a fucking cheesecake. You'll be fine. Like, go open a gay-only school and do your fucking play there. Like, like, I'm, like, who am I? Like, I was, like... I think that's what it is. I think, and you know what it is too? I learned from this neuroscientist. She's like a brain scientist. If we don't get the right sleep, we can't learn new stuff and alcohol affects your sleep. So I probably am just crazy. Yeah. At this point, I'm probably just, I don't even know. I'm so concerned. We're all like, we're just, we're not getting the right sleep. Wait, I totally lost my train of thought. I have no idea where to go well, now. Do we have the most fun of all time? <laughs> well, I mean, of course we did. I knew this would be a ball. I mean, I had the most fun of all time. Dinner's on Me is a production of Neon Hum Media, Sony Music Entertainment, and A Kid Named Beckett Productions. It's hosted by yours truly. It's executive produced by me and Jonathan Hirsch. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Chloe Chobel is our associate producer. Sam Baer engineered this episode. Hans Dale She composed our theme music. Our head of production is Sammy Allison. Special thanks to Alexis Martinez and Justin Makita. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Join me next week. <laughs> <laughs>